Support for KQED Podcasts comes from SFMOMA. Calling all music lovers, don't miss Art of Noise, the must-see exhibition of the summer. Pour over 800 works, including 1960s and 70s concert posters, hi-fi listening experiences, and more. On view now. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. From KQED. Trigger warning before we get started, this episode contains the details of an incident of gun violence. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Even though communities of color are most impacted by violent crime in California, many survivors haven't had a seat at the table to talk about what they want and need. But that's changing. Black women are taking the lead in helping victims find healing, and they're pushing to make the whole system work better. God knew that I was not going to allow Corey's death to be something that would be my demise, that I would turn my pain into power. Today, the women who want to change how California treats victims of violent crime. Hey, KQED listeners. I'm right now as podcast host, Pendarvis Harshaw, dropping a line to invite you to a summer evening of live contemporary jazz at the KQED headquarters in San Francisco, Thursday, June 20th at 7 p.m. We've got a stacked lineup of dope musicians, including vocalist Jamie Z, saxophonist Lydia Rodriguez, and harpist Destiny Muhammad. And Newsflash is the closing event for our podcast. We've had a great run, so help us celebrate the end of this chapter. Get tickets to Liner Notes Live at kqed.org slash events. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years. Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I think that we have a history, not just in California, but certainly here, of almost conflating survivor and crime voices with law enforcement. Marisa Lagos is a politics and government correspondent for KQED. She also co-hosts the Political Breakdown podcast. That was very much the case in the 90s when a lot of the tough on crime laws were passed. And and in fact, you know, some of the biggest groups that spoke on behalf of crime victims were often funded uh, by law enforcement groups or supported by them or working in lockstep. Three Strikes was really created um, out of the narrative of a couple of very horrific but very unusual cases, including the kidnapping of 12-year-old Polly Class up in Petaluma in the early 90s. In the past two months, the search for one 12-year-old girl in one small town has come to represent a whole nation's fears about random crime. She was taken from her bed by a man who had spent time in prison prior 
and raped and murdered. And that was understandably a very horrific and sort of clarion call crime for the state. Her father was one of the biggest proponents of something like three strikes. He helped write the measure and then campaigned for it to both pass the state legislature and in the voters, which it did. The basis of three strikes is it's a baseball analogy. Three strikes and you're out. So if you are convicted of a violent or serious crime and then have future felonies, even if those were not violent, um, it was written in a way that they could essentially send you to life for prison on a third strike. And so I think sometimes... You know, understandable desire of victims' families to kind of write policy and laws and push things in response to their particular circumstance did not necessarily take into account the vast majority of what victims and communities that really experience the highest levels of violent crime are dealing with. So is it fair to say then that we're talking about a very specific sort of slice of the population affected by violent crime who are really defining what victims want. Uh, I, I'm curious who, who that means is left out. Yeah, I think that that was the case uh, up until the last decade or so. And not to say that there was never anybody from, you know, communities of color or communities disproportionately affected by gun violence in the conversation. But I don't think those were the loudest voices. But I think what's happened in recent years is a real sort of groundswell of empowerment, honestly, of a lot of communities that have felt historically left out of both the, you know, the victim's compensation system, and then also just the broader conversations around safety, criminal justice, and, you know, what, who are what players in that system. Who's really leading that change? They are largely led by women of color, largely black women, mothers and wives and sisters and aunts and cousins. It's, it's, it's the black women in these communities who are really making the change and have also been the ones who have honestly suffered the most in a lot of these cases. In 2010, May 13th to be exact, I lost my husband, Corey Rojas, um, which left me to be a widow and a single mother of three. Ebony Antoine is a mother of three. She lives in Fairfield now, but she was born and raised in Oakland, met her husband uh, there. They actually went to, I think, elementary school together and then saw each other on a BART platform as adults. And so um, in 98, we were at the Fruitvale BART station and... He kind of motioned for me to come here, and I kind of motioned for him to come, and he did, and it feels like we were not separated for a moment after that. It was early on just, I would say, love at first sight. They had their first baby and decided that they wanted to move out to Stockton to be able to afford more. And then I also wanted another child, so it's like, how do we do this? Um, leaving the Bay Area is how we do this. And they ended up having two more kids and were living in an apartment complex in Stockton when their kids were, you know, relatively young and had invited Ebony's best friend as well to move out there. So I have a best friend who has five children and two of them teenage boys that I convinced to move to Stockton. And ironically, an apartment opened up right next to ours. So it's to me, I'm like, oh, this is perfect. We couldn't have prayed for a better opportunity. 
They were also from Oakland and I think felt like kind of getting out of that community would help her and would help Ebony and her husband be able to to raise, you know, help, help her friend raise her children. And what ended up happening to her husband? Can you tell me that story? Yeah. Yeah. So um, his name's Corey Rojas. He was a real family man, very involved with his kids. They were his world. Um, he was the coach of my daughter's basketball team. They were at home one night and they heard gunshots outside and he realized that there was a young man outside moaning. And so my husband said, I'm not going to let him die alone. I'm going to go out there. I remember chasing him down the stairs and say, at least wait for the police. And once we saw the sirens and the lights, um, he went out there. A little while later, a police detective knocked on their door and, you know, they told him what they knew, which was very little. They hadn't seen anything occur. And then a couple weeks later, another knock came to their front door. Um, One of the godsons who lived next door, who, you know, was a young teenager at the time, opened it. And there was a man there with a gun. He opened the door, but I guess the trauma or the fear on his face, Corey pushed him out of the way and he was shot twice. And he later died at the hospital. Yeah, it's a a horrible, horrific story. And I thought it was just tailored for me. But as my experience, it happens to way too many. I mean, that is an awful situation, and I I just can't imagine um, what Ebony's family has gone through. What is the status of Corey's case at this point in his murder? Uh, It has never been solved. Ebony has not uh, ever been, you know, told that, I, I don't even know if she's been given really updates on the case, but there has not been any sort of resolution. After her husband, Corey Rojas, was murdered, Ebony Antoine followed up with state and local authorities for help. One group she reached out to was California's Victim Compensation Board, a state agency which pays out millions of dollars every year to victims of violent crime. You can get reimbursed for things like funeral costs, relocation, counseling, and more. The agency says it approved about 30,000 applications last fiscal year, and Ebony did get some financial help from them. But she says that overall, the bureaucracy of getting that help caused her more headaches. You know, she said the first thing she had to advocate for was having her family and her best friends, the godson's families written into the report as victims so that they could potentially qualify for some of the state assistance, you know, and think about it. You're mourning the loss of your uh, partner and dealing with the aftermath of this. I mean, your children just watch this all happen. And so she's having to think about like, Oh, have you guys, you know, (laughs) crossed this T and dotted this I in the police report so that we can all apply. Ebony says in her case, you know, she did not have housing. You know, the trauma of living in a home where a homicide has happened and you expect them to go into school and be a functioning part of society. She thought maybe they would assist her with emergency shelter. She did get help with the funeral. I sent in receipts for movers. Somehow they were lost, so I was never reimbursed. 
Um, they wouldn't help her with the, you know, security deposit at her new place when she relocated to, to Fairfield. And, you know, she talked about the loss of income. Corey was their main provider. And she just talked about just how every time one of these requests was denied, it was kind of like starting over again. And it's not because the victims don't want the money or don't need the money. It's because there's a lot of red tape. So it sounds like Ebony really feels like her experience with the system didn't help her recover and heal after her husband's murder. But just zooming out a little bit, what are some of the systemic ways that the compensation system can exclude people, according to Ebony and other people you've spoken with? There's historically been some exclusions that have been put into law. There's a mandate that you cooperate reasonably with police and court officials to arrest and prosecute the offender. There are exceptions to that. You know, it's not as if if you don't cooperate with law enforcement, you're automatically disqualified. But my understanding from talking to quite a few people who have tried to utilize the system and, and, and some other folks, it is often exclusionary of people who do not want to cooperate with police. But there's a lot of situations where that might not be in somebody's best interest. Like they might feel worried about retaliation. A lot of this is subjective. It's up to people. And it starts from the moment that a police report is written. Police have to basically name you as a victim in the report to get this ball rolling. And I think one thing I've heard in this reporting and in my reporting over the years, especially in places like Oakland, is that there's a lot of distrust between these communities and law enforcement. Um, I've talked to number numerous mothers, black mothers in, in all cases, who talk about showing up to the scene of their own child being hurt or murdered and being treated like they are a suspect. I mean, so it just seems like in addition to whether or not you get the help that you need after you are a victim of a violent crime. It's also how you're treated and how you're spoken to that can really end up making the situation worse. I'm curious what the Victims Compensation Board has to say about the criticism around uh, how the how the program works. There's always more that you can do, uh, but we really want, we think we do good work um, and we really want people to know about us. So I spoke with Linda Gledhill. She's executive officer of the Victims Compensation Board. Um, and she talked about, you know, the number of people that they do help and the constraints that they're under. Criminal justice um, politics, um, you know, they go in a lot of different directions. And so our job is to help the people that we can help as the best to our, the best of our ability. They pushed back on some of my original reporting saying I was not it was not nuanced enough that, you know, there are exceptions for some of these things. Um, I think in general, they're very open to seeing their fund expanded and seeing an ability to help more people. But they really have to be careful. They are a government agency that they are operating within the bounds of the laws set out by the legislature. If the lawmakers and the governor and everyone and, and the money, quite frankly, because anytime you talk about spending a program, it costs money. Um, if that all comes and they want us to do more, you know, we'll, we'll, that's what we'll do. It's not always perfect, but we do our best. I want to come back to Ebony here. It seems like she was really re-traumatized by her experience looking for help after her husband was killed. How is she doing now and what does she want to change about the system? You know, she's raising her three children. Uh, they're all doing 
remarkably well. So my daughter, who is 22, graduated from college um, last June. My son, who is a junior, an honor student um, at our local high school. My youngest is 13, graduating from middle school this year. I can't believe that they came out so amazing with so much brokenness within me. So I'm grateful. I mean, my prayers were definitely answered. And I kind of asked her, like, why do you think your family has been able to really rise above that, you know, the, the cycle we often see off? And she talked about going to therapy, going to church, um, just really trying to process this. I mean, agony, despair, every emotion that makes you despise life itself. Um, I definitely felt it, but I knew that I was not gonna allow Corey's death to be something that would be my demise, that I would turn my pain into power. And that's in contrast to her godsons, the family that lived next door. One of them, they moved back to Oakland after uh, Corey was murdered, and one of them is now serving a sentence for murder himself. So she has created a nonprofit called Broken by Violence, whose entire mission is to help people like her navigate the system when something horrible happens. She has people come in who are years away from the crime that occurred or days away, and she's helping them fill out those forms, get the resources uh, that she wants. And she's very involved with CSJ and other organizations in pushing policy change as well. This is a horrific thing that doesn't just happen to people of color, but it happens in communities, and it could happen to anyone. A lot of the policies that Ebony and others are advocating for, they actually have seen some movement on. So the state is increasing the amount of cash victims can get, including relocation expenses. Um, they're removing some of those barriers to qualifying. So there's going to be more options for folks on parole and probation to qualify while they're on, you know, in that process. There's going to be more flexibility around cooperating with police, some exceptions for that. And then one thing that's kind of out of that realm, but really important to um, Ebony and others is this $300 million or more, really, the that the governor and lawmakers put into programs that are aimed at both supporting victims and doing the work around preventing future crimes. There's 50 million for grants to community organizations who can give that direct cash assistance, but there's also money for like trauma recovery services and some re-entry programs, which I think speaks to the holistic way they're trying to approach this. which is like, it's not just about helping somebody who was the victim of a crime. It's also about coming out on the back end and saying, hey, you went to prison, you serve your time. How can we make sure you come out and are a success instead of just going back to violence um, or harming people? And so I think when you look at that um, and the fact that like some of these things, like those community grants literally came from the ideas and brainstorming of folks like Ebony, um, it's, it, it is really big. I mean, I'll say as a political reporter, I was shocked by how much of this ended up getting uh, put in to statute this year. What do people like Ebony worry will happen if victims don't get the support that they need after experiencing something horrible like what her family went through? I mean, the line I hear again and again is that hurt people hurt people. I mean, the trauma that kind of evolves from unsolved homicides, um, is unbearable. You don't need a master's in criminology or to live in one of these communities to understand that 
a lot of these patterns of violence are cyclical. You know, there's retribution involved or there is um, a level of, I think, hopelessness that when you have been hurt so much that you might reach for that same quote unquote solution as the thing that hurt you. And so I think that that's really a huge part of this is like this idea that we can actually make everyone safer. We can make our entire society and community safer if we meet people where they are instead of kind of assuming that because they were involved in something or the victims of something or that they live in a certain place, that this is just the way it is. Marisa, thank you so much for your reporting and for sharing it with us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I, I, I guess I have to thank Ebony and all these amazing women who really like opened up their hearts and were so vulnerable. And it just, um, their it's their stories. So, thank you for uh, being willing to highlight them. That was Marisa Lagos, politics and government correspondent for KQED and co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast, which you can find wherever it is that you found the bay. This 40-minute conversation with Marisa was cut down and edited by producer Maria Esquinka. Alan Montesilio scored this one and added all the tape. The Bay is a production of KQED in San Francisco. You can find us and our team on Twitter at The Bay KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>